I have to believe that a man like you still has a few contacts at home. A colleague from the Obsidian Order. An old friend. A reliable informant. Someone who might owe you a favor. Perhaps. Then I'd say it's time to call in a favor. It would mean calling in all my favors, Captain. To do what you're asking would use up every resource I have left on Cardassia. And it may be a very messy, very bloody business. Are you prepared for that? I posted my 14th casualty list this morning. I'm already involved in a very messy, very bloody business. And the only way I can see to end it is to bring the Romulans into the war. I am prepared to do whatever it takes to accomplish that goal, but I can't do it alone. I need help. Now, are you in or out? I'm in. My father used to say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I laid the first stone right there. I'd committed myself. I'd pay any price, go to any lengths, because my cause was righteous. My intentions were good. In the beginning, that seemed like enough. Hello, and welcome to Snap Trek, the podcast that compares two episodes of the galaxy's greatest science fiction franchise, Star Trek. I'm one of your hosts, Jen Tiff, and I'm joined, as always, by Ross Webster. Hi, Ross. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Good. I'm glad to hear it. And we are very lucky today because I'm not just joined by Ross. uh, We are also joined by a special guest. We're joined today by Lee Hutchison. Lee, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks Thanks very much for having me on. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, Lee is the host of Filibuster and the A24 Project podcast. And we're really glad you're here to talk Trek with us today. Yeah, I love I love chatting about Star Trek and like the idea like I'm a big into like the idea of like double features and so on. So Snap yeah. Trek, when it's came along, has been like feels like the perfect podcast for someone like myself. Oh, awesome. Thanks for saying that. And, and we love listening to you. Why don't you tell uh, listeners about your podcast? Yeah, I've got got two. So the A24 project is like, it's similar to Snaptrack in a way. We kind of focus on two movies a week from the A24 film distributors. So if you're ever looking to see a film where like Patrick Stewart's a neo-Nazi or Anton Yelchin's a punk rocker, <laughs> like we've got films like that covered and we interview people along the way and then kind of filibuster as a sort of general film and culture show. And I can't hide my kind of Star Trek fandom on that. So we talk about like independent cinema movies, but also I managed to kind of dive into star trek here and there and we kind of get some (laughs) guests on from kind of behind the scenes and in front of the cameras here and there so yeah it's always a treat to be able to to chat about star trek every so often oh that's great we're so glad to have you here yeah i i I highly recommend those i I get i get i I subscribe to the um the nerd party feed so i get like all of them in the one feed (laughs) very good very good good to have a fan yeah (laughs) um but yeah it's always interesting all right, uh, let's let's do this.
Some kind of game? I've never seen that one before. How do you play? On SnapTrack, we compare our episodes using a variety of categories, and we select a line or a scene or a prop or a character that we think is great, and we award a point to the answer that we think is the best. Aggressive. Adversarial. Competition. For fun. SnapTrack is a competition, but it's played just for fun. There are no prizes or trophies. The real aim is to have a great conversation about Star Trek and maybe think about the episodes in a new way. And we do love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at SnapTrek. And we'd love to hear from you any ideas for episode comparisons or categories or any feedback you have. And we especially love hearing any Star Trek poetry you'd like to share. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can also reach me on Twitter. I'm at Quarks. Uh, Ross, how can people get a hold of you? I'm also on Twitter at strtrk1701. Okay, and Lee, how can everyone get a hold of you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Lee Hutchison underscore or at Star Trek VHS. Oh, that's a great follow. Yes. <laughs> They're both great follows, but I love your, your VHS. Star Trek VHS is an yes. excellent follow. I've, I've enjoyed interacting with that account and you several times over the years. Uh, very good, very good. I'm glad. It's very interesting. And can I just ask, actually, as we're talking about this, do you actually have, are these all uh vhs covers that you have in your possession in your collection yeah yeah a hundred percent um they're basically like a couple years ago maybe five six years ago i started just like buying them on ebay and just saying to people like just recycle the boxes the you know the videos just send me the covers so like i would buy them up for like (laughs) a couple quid like in batches of 100 scan them in and i've got like a couple of folders where i've got them all kind of like put in kind of a poly pocket and just like scanned and saved online and for for anyone that wants to access them trek core have a copy as well so they're all kind of nicely saved there as well to kind of keep that kind of artwork alive so cool that's awesome yeah i highly recommend um both both those accounts are great star trek follows all right let's do this on today's snap trek we will compare two episodes where, pushed to the limit by the casualties of war, our Starfleet captain makes a choice antithetical to his code of ethics in order to give their side a fighting chance in what has become an increasingly dire situation. Ross, what did what episode did you watch? I was lucky enough to watch Series 6, Episode 19, In the Pale Moonlight. Probably, I mean, one of Star Trek's very best offerings. I am excited to see how this could compare against any other episode. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> Lee, what did you watch? I watched um, season three, episode 19 of Enterprise Damage, a criminally underrated episode of Star Trek. Absolutely, I agree. And we should say that Lee came up with this comparison and... It is a particularly tasty comparison. It really is. For the two captains to be facing this sort of insurmountable challenge and then dealing with it in a way which we totally wouldn't usually associate with our, our you know, leads of our shows. But here we are, and it's a very, very compelling uh, double feature. I think when I originally picked this, like I threw this double bill and a couple of others into to the mix. I think I did it about like December, January, like the 
peak of kind of a second lockdown things are like a mess all across <laughs> yeah. the country and i was like i, I kind of look back and went, jesus i was in a dark place when i picked these like double bills it wasn't like rascals together with like babel and stuff it's just like this is like we're going really really dark here so uh, yeah like an interesting kind of throwback <laughs> it is it's a, these are these are serious like like really it's a really interesting matchup but it's it's also it's a very thought-provoking matchup too you know and I, it's dark but it's also just very thought-provoking and and really really good um compare comparison here absolutely so it's gonna be good all right commander i would like to remind you about my poetry reading this afternoon i wouldn't miss it for the world I can't wait to see what he's come up with. We begin, as always, with a lyrical recap of the episodes under discussion. So, Ross, I'd love to hear what you have come up with for In the Pale Moonlight. Okay, so befitting an episode of such gravitas and seriousness, (laughs) I have, of course, written a limerick uh, to represent the episode. (laughs) Um, actually, it's a, it's more than one. It's a couple. Okay. Interesting. Okay. With the fate of the quadrant at stake, Cisco has choices to make. He commissions a flawed optolithic rod. Renak knows, of course, it's a fake. And then after I wrote that, I thought actually there's another half of this episode to tell as well. Garak is brought into this plot. So, of course, what it seems, it is not. He knew all along the plan would go wrong and considers the costs not a lot. Excellent. I love that. Both sides of of the same story, right? Because two people are kind of getting played here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cisco's got a plan to play, you know, to play the Romulans, but Garrick's got his own plan too. I love it. And I kept kept it nicely serious. I didn't, uh, no, no funnies in this one. Yeah, there really aren't too many funnies in either of these episodes, huh? <laughs> no. I, I think I think In the Pale Moonlight had a slightly... Some of it was a little bit lighter, but damage. That was dark all the way through. Yeah, yeah. All right, nicely done. Uh, Lee, I'd love to hear what you came up with for damage. Yeah, kind of no pressure on this one. Like, uh, this is the part, <laughs> like, I was like, all the other parts, like, notes on this, notes on that. Yeah, I want to talk about this. It's like, right. oh, my God, I've got to do this poem and lyric. And like, <laughs> I, I am interested in creative people. I am not a creative person. <laughs> this is a challenging episode, too. Yeah, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just, like, the good thing is, like, this is always at the start of, like, a snap track episode. So I was like, you know what? I'll revisit some, you know, dive into some episodes, just get a kind of, get an idea going when I've been out for, like, a run on some of the other work. So I just, like, <laughs> this afternoon, I polished off a, a bottle of white wine, got, like, the um, the rhyming dictionary kind of out, and I was like, right, here we go. It. So this is this is my, my attempt. I think this is the first poem I've written since primary school. So, um, yeah, I will try not to get stage fright or start giggling. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so last week was the Battle of Azate Prime. The bell is chiming. Archer is broken and battered. The Enterprise has been clattered. T'Pol is struggling without her drug. Someone give Porthos a hug. Archer is going down a risky road. The crew has been sent a secret code. A risky plan, and flocks won't dent, but can T'Pol be bent? A poor pad gets smashed as T'Pol lashed. Archer sends for the Mako troops, 
The warp coil is protected. Whoops. Poor Casey Briggs is stranded, <laughs> but he's got the chef's best produce. Is the Enterprise on course for a Zindi Starfleet truce? Wow. That was really good. You got a lot in there. That was really good. You hit every major plot point. That was fantastic. I, I love that you managed to get a Casey Biggs cameo in there. Of course. There's like a little connective tissue between the two. It felt it had to be given. Right, right. Oh, that's great. That was really good. I love that. It was very good. That shouldn't be your last Star Trek poem that you write. There should definitely be more poems. Yeah. Well, we'll see what the white wine does next week. <laughs> that always helps. But you know what? It kind of had this a similar beat to the episode because the, ep- the, the episode was just like unrelenting, like stuff happening to Archer, you know what I mean? It was like beat for beat, beat after beat after beat after beat of just like unrelenting war and tragedy and decisions. And, and that's kind of what, you know, the same feeling with the, with the, the rhythm that you chose for your poem. I really like that. Yes, that was intentional. <laughs> <laughs> that's the great thing about poems. You know, it doesn't have to be. <laughs> All right. Well, those were really great guys. Uh, let's, let's get to some categories. All right. Okay, for category one, let's start with. Let, well, let's let's start with let's start with the beginning. How how our captains got where they, where they are here. Uh, this category one is the line must be drawn. So what 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 led to our captains choosing these options? All right, uh, Ross, the line must be drawn in in the pale moonlight. Okay. This was an easy category to fill out because the cold open just gave the whole thing away for you. <laughs> yeah, it was just the cold open. It was, it was. <laughs> Cisco has taken to the grim habit of posting the weekly casualty list in the wardroom so that every officer and crewman can note whether anyone they know has been sort of KIA or are missing as part of the war effort. And it's, I mean, it's a fairly morbid way to spend a Friday morning. And it does really bring the sort of enormity and distress of the war into a sharp focus for people to really like think about and for us to sort of see how it's impacting people. And what happens on this particular Friday morning, Dax is upset at the loss of a former Academy colleague called Leslie Wong, uh, whose ship was attacked by the Jem'Hadar as they snuck across the Romulan border, destroying her vessel, the Cairo. Now, and this uh, it's all given away. This is like the whole exposition, the whole point of why the episode comes into play is in the cold open. Because the Romulans are turning a blind eye to these border incursions uh, due to their non-aggression pact with the Dominion, the, the Starfleet is being negatively affected by this. And it's these sort of political shenanigans that force Cisco to consider that he should be the one to bring the Romulans into the war. And it it's very a sort of a solemn oath made at the end of that first cold open to himself. He was going to do whatever it takes to bring the Romulans into the war and change uh, the, the, the layout of the Alpha Quadrant and uh, maybe turn the tides a little bit. So that was the final straw. It was the loss of Leslie Wong and the Cairo. <laughs> to a Jem'Hadar sneak attack across the Romulan border. Yeah, I mean, the the entire, the situation was just getting more and more dire day by day, right? It was pretty sad to watch that whole thing unfold as he's like, he's putting up there and people are crying and sort of holding their heads. 
you know, it's not a, not a happy beginning. You forget how dark Deep Space Nine really got when it was talking about some of these things. Yeah, and at this point in the both both of these episodes are are smack dab in the middle of of a really interesting arc mm. of their show, and in, at this point in in um in Deep Space Nine in the Dominion War, I mean, this is like like the Dominion forces are are like flourishing and and the you know Federation is pretty much hanging on by a thread. So it's getting something has to something has to give. And Cisco decides it's going to be Romulan his. reinforcements. Yeah, and, and it's going to be his responsibility to make it happen. I think one thing that's interesting is like that you touched on there, Jen. Is like they both come at an interesting point of the season. It's quite amusing to me that they actually both land at episode nineteen of sort of their their respective kind of seasons, where you've oh, kind no, of got that. Funny. You know, obviously the Enterprise season is just a kind of couple episodes shorter kind of than um, Deep Space Nine that year. But it is all about that sort of like pushing things to kind of the, the next level. I mean, both episodes are kind of hugely important in kind of kickstarting those kind of next level arcs. You know, Enterprise, mm-hmm. what that kind of, you know, reaching out to kind of see Degra, you know, for this bringing the Romulans into the war, more firepower, and then ultimately being able to sort of get a bit of a an edge in the kind of coming victory, um, you know, sort of in the Chintaka system at the end of the season so it's it's really interesting how they both sort of play into kind of pushing forward that season where you know yeah you do see it sometimes with season six of deep space nine it kind of very dominion heavy then it just kind of really pulls back and and it almost feels like there's no kind of war taking place whatsoever but they both come at that point where it's like right we are really kind of doubling down on this and this is going to be our kind of final push towards the season and we're going to go into to really dark places to do it that does make you think, you know, they, they whack out the stuff, the Star Trek handbook and be like, see, episode 19, perfect time for a crisis <laughs> of confidence in the captains to really go to some dark places. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess if you are, you know, it's, it's a little more interesting to tell that story than it is for just nothing to go wrong. And, you know, oh, absolutely. and no one has to... Uh, you know, has to compromise anything within themselves and then they win. And that's not as, it, you know, that's not interesting storytelling. Like not both of the, both of these episodes are, are incredibly interesting and, and, and make, make their cat, make the captains, uh, I mean, that much more deep characters, you know, it's, I don't know. It, it's, it, it's, 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 it's easy, a lot easier to, to write a character that doesn't have to make a hard decision like that. You yeah, know? completely. Like, yeah. yeah, and it's something I'm certainly going to going to touch on, kind of as the the episode kind yeah. of goes on. So, yeah, I, th- I think it for for yeah. sure that like that is what makes this an interesting kind of you know it's not just the pairing, but it's like episodes. It's is conflict yeah. drama that you know you hear the interviews with so many Star Trek writers over the years. Like that is what they want to be doing. That is what they want to be kind of playing to. But yeah. sometimes they get trapped yeah. in that Roddenberry box, that Roddenberry the, vision, the right or wrong. Crew. Right, that's a good point. That's a good point. These these probably were a lot of fun for both uh, Avery Brooks and Scott Bakula too. I didn't think of it that way to play. Um, and on that note, in uh, Damage, Lee, where the line where must the line be drawn in Damage? 
Yeah, so for Archer, he's, as we kind of touched on, he has been a kind of broken and battered man. He's gone on a suicide mission that has failed, but he's potentially <laughs> made an ally with, with Degra um, from this sort of Zindi council. So he has left them a message that in three days' time, he will be waiting for the Enterprise. But the problem is that they are four light years away from their current position, and the Enterprise doesn't have a warp drive. And Archer, without even sort of batting an eyelid, is immediately kind of thinks, right, I need to go back to these people we helped the other day and essentially steal their warp coil. And he makes that conscious decision that he is going to be willingly kind of stranding people, potentially sacrificing them so that he can make a meeting that may or may not lead to sort of a positive destination for for the Enterprise and for their mission to kind of save Earth. It's a very quick decision for him, isn't it? And we we see sort of we see Cisco struggle with it all through the episode about what he's done, and we see Archer just sort of almost instantly decide that's what he's going to do, and you know, it's a it's a more quickly told tale. But wow, he he goes there so quickly. I was like, wow, he's not even giving this a second thought. This this is where he's going. Let's, he's doing it. Well, quick. I, think I gave it. I gave it. He gave it some thought, but he's also on a time crunch. Oh yeah, that's you it. Know, he has to get to this coordinate in three days or whatever it is versus like Cisco's is more of, this is what our strategy should be yeah. next in this war versus like I have archers got to be just done like, in the next few minutes. This has to be done. Yeah. We have to get to the, we have to make this rendezvous point, you know, or else all is, is lost. And, and I, I think given that time crutch, he, he did. I, I mean, we, we, there was a scene where he was alone in his, ready room and he speaks to flocks you know and mm-hmm. and you see he struggles with the decision but you're right i mean he does make it because i mean he's archer of course that's the decision he's gonna make you know he's gonna yeah. he's, he's gonna save earth <laughs> no matter what it takes and i suppose it's the interesting thing where you think about it like enterprises on the front line is a ship alone dealing with mm-hmm. these kind of issues like there is no one to kind of you know, contact Earth to find out what's kind of going on, to seek approval, to get back up. With Deep Space Nine, it is very much a station behind the lines at the moment. It has that ability to make those decisions. If you are sort of the USS Excalibur or something like that on the the Cardassian border, you know, seeing people shop or, you know, the AR-558, you know, you, you see those very huge differences, those people that don't have their beds, their sonic showers, and the decisions they make, you know, Cisco has that more time to kind of play things through, to to play on the line, to dance along it. Archer has no choice but to to step over, and it has been very much that mm-hmm. season long arc. and And I'm going to try my best within damage to just focus on damage and what goes on in damage. But <laughs> it is also a, a part of a, a larger larger whole in a way that, as much yeah. as we think, sort of Deep Nine is serialized, it never kind of came as close, really, until sort of the the final ten episodes of how serialized the season three of, of enterprise was. Yeah. Yeah. And series three of enterprise, you really need the cold open at the beginning of this episode, to tell you what's gone on in the previous episodes. Otherwise you really wouldn't follow where they are. Yeah. And it was so easy to carry on watching. I, I just kept on going up until uh, E squared. I think it just <laughs> carried on. I thought, this is great. I'm, I'm back in it again. So I was, I was really following it through. Um, but he, as you say, uh, almost Cisco is in sort of a luxurious position. He's still in the, he's still commanding his station. You know, he's in his home, whereas Archer is essentially walking around the ruins of his starship, trying to figure out how he's going to save the planet. So he, he does have a lot more pressure on him at that point. He, he's even physically, you know, there's even physically on his face signs of, you know, 
like he like he still has bruising and and stuff on his face oh yeah from, yeah yeah from his uh, time with the Zindi. Um, yeah, and, and Cisco Cisco even gets his his plan approved. Well, the, you know the the surface layer of the plan approved from Starfleet. Uh, whereas Archer's just totally like you mentioned, Lee. He's just totally, you know, frontier. He's the one that's on the line and yeah. has to make these decisions. And that's always one thing that's slightly interesting bothered me a little bit about in the pale moonlight which is, is sacrilegious to say and you know i think it's incredible hour of, of star trek is that i always regret that that they had that little line that he seek permission from starfleet to do that yeah. like yeah. i wish it was like a complete rogue operation between the starfleet captain and this cardassian sort of traitor and uh, with this mysterious past like i wish that was kept in because it plays better when especially when they're like people start getting killed off that know things and so on and i i think like right. you think like you know what's happened to say one day like they pick up that signal or you know you can imagine the romulans have you know listening posts here there everywhere you know or they hack starfleet something like that you know there's some wiki wiki leaks leak of like that is not a good position to kind of be in i it always feels like it just takes away from what is a really good kind of dynamic between a couple of people. It just makes it unnecessarily larger in my thing, and it takes away just a little bit of the the drama. I, you know what, I I agree with that. I, I think that the, I think though, if they didn't have it in, it's the, it's, it's the signing off in the biomimetic gel that I think if they if they didn't have something about Starfleet being like, how would that have worked if he didn't you know what i mean like like how would he have gotten to do that without getting reprimanded or investigated or whatever i don't know to make me feel better i, I kind of feel like okay well maybe it's it was signed off by section 31 and not like traditional <laughs> starfleet command this seems like a section 31 <laughs> this is completely a section 31 kind of mission yeah but I agree with I agree with your say, with what you're saying, Lee. Uh, but I, I take it like a step farther because I I think I mean we can talk about this later. But I I think that like like Cisco kind of pawned off the dirty work to Garrick mm-hmm. in such a way that like it kind of fits. With, you know what I mean? Like he didn't he didn't actually get his hands dirty compared to like Archer. I I kind of feel like I don't know. No, I see what you mean. Actually, he you know did, what I mean? He, he... Like, that's what he. I mean, he brought Garrick in ostensibly to utilize his skills and make yeah. contact with Kada. You know, the Kardashian. He knew that he would do things that that Cisco yeah. wouldn't. And Garrick says as much at the end, doesn't he? Yeah. That's why you brought me in. You knew that I. If anyone was going to get this done, it's going to be me, and I do. Yeah. I do anything it took. Like here's a here's a point. Like, do you guys like? I'm sure you do. Do you guys know where like the title, the Pale Moonlight, comes from? Dance with the Devil in the Pale Moonlight. Yeah. Which I <laughs> presume is from Batman 1989. Correct, yeah. And you, you think of like that dynamic is like you have the Joker and you have the Batman. They are destined to always do this kind of forever. Like you essentially have kind of Cisco almost in that kind of Batman role. You know, he is stoic. He is the one with values and principles. He can never kill. But the Joker, he is the one that can kind of go off and do that. And, you know, Garrick is very similar in, into that traits. You know, he, you know, he will say a smile but he has no qualms about stabbing you in the back you know 
doing the kind of the dirty work and so on. And I find that interesting kind of relationship. You can see the parallels between sort of Batman and the Joker and kind of Cisco and Garrick, especially in that kind of decision-making process. I like it. The, the idea that they're both, yeah, geniuses, but will approach things completely differently because they're, diff- they're just different people to the core. But they've both got the same goal, so they're going to work together and try to achieve something. I don't know. It, is it really? Is that really where the title comes from, Batman? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't come from somewhere? Like nope, Batman nope. him saying... There's, I, I wish I had it to hand, um, but yeah, like it's been asked before, like where they got it from. They were like, yeah, they took it from Batman, and there was like an, uh, there you can, there's a thing out there with the the writer. I think it's Sam Ham, uh, who direct wrote uh, wrote the original Batman, and they asked him about that line, and he was like, oh, I wish I could have taken credit for it. Like he had written the first draft, and he goes like, someone else just like scribbled it in. It's like it's a totally original line, and it yeah, it does come from, from oh Batman. And I love when like oh. you have Star Trek. <laughs> that goes from like you know greek you know um latin everything it's like you can imagine like the irish stephen bears the robert hewitt wills the ronald d moore's going oh, i really like that line in batman yeah let, let's make that an episode title <laughs> oh my god that's that so fascinating cool. that's so interesting and yeah yeah i mean and also too but but if you're if you're using like the Joker or Garrick to do your dirty work, like to try to keep your hands clean. Does that really, I don't know. Like, like it's like, I kind of think Archer, Archer did his own dirty work. Like he's like, I'm leading the away team. I'm going to go get that thing versus Cisco is just like, well, I'm just going to pretend I don't see what you're doing. Garrick. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. That's so interesting. All right, so we have, okay, so as far as points go, this is challenging one. What what do you give your points on for this? You know, like the most desperate situation or how it was handled or I don't know. What what are your thoughts, Ross or Lee? It seems like a matter of degree. I think... The final yeah. straw for the final straw for Cisco. It's 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 taken a long time to get here, but he still has the comfort of deciding and figuring it out, and it being something he is determined to do and has decided a course of action upon. Whereas mm-hmm. for Archer, the final straw is essentially you know pulled out from under his feet, and he's got to make a decision right now. Otherwise, so, you know everything's going to go wrong immediately if he doesn't act right now so it seems to me the final straw is much more pressing for archer than it is for than it is for cisco i don't think the stakes are any less as such because Mm -hmm. they're both fighting for survival and for the earth and you know for essentially the galaxy whether it's the expanse or the (laughs) the alpha quadrant um but the immediacy of the situation and the sort of this is it you can't take any more got to make a decision even if it's not one a particularly savory one i think it falls to archer for me okay uh lee how about you i think for 
me, I think, like, you can argue, like, Archer, like, the line must be drawn here. And it, he literally will draw the line, like, that's the line he is stepping over it. You know, it's mm-hmm. obviously an amalgamation of kind of, like, what he goes through that whole season. Whereas I think it's almost yeah. more interesting with kind of Cisco, where when I was rewatching the episode, like, he draws that line, he steps over it, he steps back over it. And it's, like, <laughs> things like where he's, like, talking with Garrick and, like, the, you know, the turbo lift. And it's, like, you know, that's it done, you know, forget it lift goes for a few seconds he stepped back over line behind the line and it's like no the client like, and i just think it's interesting kind of that dance that kind of cisco has with the line and kind of drawing it and you know he is constantly pushing it you know what it, it all is and so and i mean essentially by the end like you know the line being drawn he is essentially expecting when that romulan ship goes back to have the romulans join the dominion in the war against the federation like mm-hmm. the consequences right. of that are wild absolutely wild but i think kind of for a for the line i think i would probably have to give it to to cisco i think it's it's very interesting i think there's more kind of interesting drama to watch that dance than sort of have something conclusive yeah uh my, my point's also going in the, in the pale moonlight here because um it's more deliberate of a decision like like what you were saying ross was was that archer pretty much was was just thrust into this decision like he yep. had to make the decision right now and and do it and get it done. This was Cisco's was more de- deliberate of of like an actual strategy of war, which I think is a lot more difficult to like talk yourself into versus the necessity of of you know the time constraint like like Archer had. So mm-hmm. so I I I, fi- I find it that fascinating and and I think so my point's going to go to in the in the pale moonlight for that category. Mm. All right. So In the Pale Moonlight has two and Damage has one for the first round. Pretty good. (laughs) All right. So for the second category, second category is Art of Darkness. We're going to talk about the actual making of and, and, and different techniques they've used to uh within the making of the episodes um lee would you like to start for damage yeah this is something i'm i'm when it comes to like i suppose a little bit of background to this like i love love star trek Um, i've grown up with it as like a kid and you know i'm just about to turn into my mid-30s like it's always been kind of my life but it's also been an education for me like it was the tv show it's the film i was always exposed to as a kid that and it introduced me to so many kind of filmmaking techniques and how tv was put together so i've always viewed star trek like i so, so if someone asked me like who's your kind of like star trek kind of mount rushmore it would oft, it would pretty much be the make it would be the people behind the kind of camera so whenever i watch mm-hmm. star trek that is often at the the back of my mind and i think damage and season three are really interesting kind of to explore and i think there was like a tweet a couple months ago where someone spoke about like what is some of the best looking episodes of star trek and you know you get so many of the kind of typical kind of episodes and so on but i put up ones where i put like a couple of screenshots from like azati prime and and damage you know that mm-hmm. image of azati prime we always think of where it like zero zooms in on sort of to paul's face is like the enterprise is burning like so dramatic but kind of a lot of the things i'll kind of touch on across this kind of episode is what makes this such a kind of visually appealing kind of episode and you kind of look at why enterprise was brilliant in a way like even sort of that first couple of seasons 
it's not the greatest but it was visually appealing in a way that a lot of star trek wasn't to that point you know i was someone that loved going to the to the movies watching films and i was so used to widescreen tv where star trek was always within that letterbox you know nice even tv <laughs> kind of light and you know this was the last season to be shot on 35 mil before they moved to kind of digital but star trek was widescreen and that was made star trek even kind of a boring episode of Enterprise looked so much more theatrical than some of the most dramatic episodes of, of Trek. So I always thought of this episode where I think like the way they use light is, is stunning. You know, you have, have Marvin Rush who had some work on, on early Deep Space Nine. I think he did some Next Generation, you know, big Voyager guy. And then he kind of came over to, to Enterprise. Um, and you have James L. Conway, who I think is an incredibly overlooked director in kind of Star Trek. He's pulled off some of the, the big episodes. You think of like Way of the Warrior, Broken Bow, In a Mirror Darkly. And some of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine as well. And he was so close to getting the first contact job, but Patrick Stewart swung it in the way of, of Jonathan Frakes. So when you kind of think of like Star Trek, um, even, you know, I suppose thinking at the time, you know, discovery and everything changes things. But when you think of sort of Star Trek, you take Deep Space Nine to an extent, um, very even TV lighting, I don't think, I always think of like Enterprise D and Voyager sort of very bland kind of light ships you know but the reality is they were shows of their time i'm not going to really criticize them for that and enterprise in those first few seasons as well very kind of like yeah it was a submarine but it was very kind of colorful it was very bright and there was always a visual continuity between all of those shows which i think ultimately can make star trek a bit kind of stale at times but season three was it was a huge change and i thought the lighting in this episode was was really significant um you know, I'm not kind of saying any sort of some of the previous shows like Voyager, Enterprise, etc., that they always had this boring light. And there are exceptions, but it was one off episodes where the cinematography I thought was noticeable. And I mm-hmm. think the widescreen um, kind of changed it to cinematic as well. But it feels like season three that the Berman authority over how Star Trek looked and sounded was kind of removed in quite dramatic ways. And the two scenes that I want to highlight from from sort of the episode are sort of Archer's conversations with sort of Phlox and T'Pol. You know, you sort of first think about sort of that scene that you touched on earlier with kind of Archer in the ready room. He is sitting in the dark and the only real lighting comes from sort of the natural sources. Like there's a bit of light above his desk and a terminal screen. And Archer's face is always masked in darkness, half of it, or is hidden mm-hmm. as he contemplates mm-hmm. sort of this decision to sort of steal from the ship. And Phlox is kind of masked in that darkness as well. You know, as Archer begins to sort of go into it with kind of Phlox, the camera locks, it stops. And it's that's very traditional, that kind of static shot on Star Trek. But it's it's so much more than that. Like it just has that gradual zoom in on Archer as he sort of starts to talk about his kind of plan. You know, have you ever had to make any sort of big decisions that have kind of cost people's lives? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I have. And it gets darker and darker. And you have flocks. Like he is this amazing, stunning alien with this like huge smile, (laughs) everything like that. Like we get to the point where like flocks facial features, his eyes, his nose, his smile is completely dark. We just see the outlines of his ridges and kind of Archer goes from just having this kind of half dark face into being visually kind of coated in dark, um, you know, the dark. I find that like incredibly interesting to kind of watch because we don't think often of cinematography of 
telling the mental state of a kind of character in Star Trek. Mm. And like that's playing a significant kind of role in doing that. Like it is someone that these are people that are like being liberated to go, you can use cinematography to tell what the character's mental state is going through. In the Pale Moonlight does not do that. It is very verbal. Then you kind of have it with only kind of minutes later, we have the next kind of scene with sort of T'Pol. Now, this one is slightly different. It has more cuts. And I find that interesting because with Phlox, like he is someone that every one of these crew is like enabling kind of Archer's decision. Whereas T'Pol is kind of quite frantic. There's these cuts. They're dancing around each other. You know, there's almost this dance of like, and we'll kind of touch on it a little bit more sort of the context of that kind of conversation. But there's a bit where like, Archer's not looking at her. He's like, I've made up my decision. And she's on, she's behind him on his shoulder, this head. You know, she's almost like the angel to his devil here. Mm. But what I found interesting, you have those first two, those, these two conflict scenes with, with Phlox and T'Pol. There's no music. Um, until kind of T'Pol breaks, she snaps the, the pad. And then sort of like, it pulls you back in that these two scenes have been stripped of music. Um, and that that is totally normal with Star Trek but I'm a fan of that creative process of stripping something of music when kind of to put when Archer's having that conversation with Phlox he's saying he is going to cross a line how do we as audience members respond to that are we judging Archer are we shocked by what's going on are we like hell yeah Archer you go get them and so on are we very much in that kind of post 9-11 kind of we're up for it kind of world we are making those decisions like the the, the audio is not kind of dictating that and then mm-hmm. it's the same with sort of like with DePaul we have this argument going out between two incredibly popular kind of characters both taking hugely different kind of viewpoints and I, again I will I will touch on kind of the the conversation point in, in another round but it is morally ambiguous we are like you know a lot of people will be like yeah this is DePaul how can you do this like how can you justify this and then sort of the music kind of kicks in and it's not playing where it's like dramatic. It's like very sympathetic to Paul that she is, she's broken down. She is completely kind of done by this point. And I think it's interesting where I recently did a, a Star Trek Enterprise rewatch. You know, I've it's something I've, I've never really done is like straight through. But I did it with Enterprise after kind of doing Voyager. And it was really interesting to watch some of the first two seasons, listen to the first two seasons. Very fine music instrumentals and stuff it was good but like season three kind of kicks in and it was like dramatic music it really complemented our character's mental psyche you know the stress and strains i always think about that rick berman quote where it's like i don't want the music in our face i want it to be wallpaper yeah yeah okay fair enough some star trek is good with like that but when star trek is really good whether it's the movies or the tv it is music that kind of con- con- complements our kind of characters and i think dennis mccarthy who has done a done a fantastic job in this kind of episode and you know on a, a kind of writing point of view i thought it was interesting as well this episode was written by sort of phyllis phyllis strong interestingly this was her final episode and only one of two that was wasn't co-written with mike sussman so i think i think it's it's very much has that kind of touch there where it's not written by sort of like one of the male writers that is kind of enabling this kind of bad behavior it's coming very much from sort of a female perspective on this kind of dynamic and i I think like the way this is shot is just stunning seeing that use of darkness the use of blues the fact that they are going well this is like friday night tv i think it was by that point of star Mm. trek and it's like yeah we've basically got the screen blacked out we can't see really what's going on 
<laughs> I thought that was something to be to be really credited by, and I think really beautiful kind of episode of Star Trek, and and really brave too. It's such a good. It, first of all, I think it's great that we're actually discussing this this version of Star Trek because we never in Snap Trek we never really go behind the scenes to this extent <laughs> or talk about creative decisions or dynamics like that. So this is it's interesting to talk about this. The scene you picked with Flocks whereby Archer and he are talking, it honestly stood out when I watched Damage. That, like, wow. They have, they've totally blacked out both their faces. And they're, they're sending us a message here that these, you know, these people are in dark places. They're doing things they wouldn't normally do. And here's us doing something we wouldn't normally do. You know, we're not... This isn't Picard on the bridge of the Enterprise. This is a man in the darkest pits of his psyche, contemplating things he never thought he should or could consider. And we are, and it's interesting you brought up the musical cues because we do rely so much on music to tune us into where the scene is going and to give us that cue for how we should be feeling. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what sound effects and um, music so often do. They, they, they give you that sort of emotional resonance for you to sort of participate in the episode. But for them to do it purely with the lighting and to to look at this and think, oh my god, this is this is much perhaps much worse than I think this is gonna be. It, it was so strong and so striking. Uh really, really powerful stuff. Yeah, and, and the and the difference between the two scenes with Fox and with DePaul, you know, because Fox is Fox isn't scolding him at all. He's he's saying yeah, I've I've done things I'm not proud of, and I'll be ready in sick bay. If you know, mm. he said, you know, Archer says that really dark thing that there could be more casualties, and Fox is I'll be ready, and they're you know both in like you said in the in the dark, and it and and um you know and obviously T'Pol you know takes a take takes a different uh, stance on that. Uh, but wow, yeah, it it is what a what a great pick. I mean, it, it's the way that you can use the lighting to tell the story. It's even in that, like at the beginning of the scene too, like Flax comes with Porthos and normally that's like, that's always bright. Like, yeah, the Porth- the, you know, like it's a like, cheese like, joke, like, isn't it? Or, it's uh, a cheese you know, joke. Yeah. And Porthos comes in and, and Archer gives him a big hug and they have a thing, you know, and he didn't, he didn't even like Archer just still stays like in the shadows and doesn't say anything or even look in the direction of Porthos, you know, and, and it like sets this tone um just but just with the, the how different it looks from a normal <laughs> portho scene you know, or whatever um oh wow uh, yeah what a great what a great pick well not to be outdone uh in the pale moonlight yes it does it does something which star trek so rarely does first of all we do see cisco lose his cool and cisco does lose his cool occasionally and raise his voice <laughs> But it's so rare that we see him angrily punch someone in the face, uh, which I wanted to mention that because it doesn't happen very often. And you know things are taking a turn when Cisco Cisco is going crazy. But that that is not what I want to talk about here. The whole premise of the episode here is to demonstrate how conflicted Cisco is about the choices he's made. And it is written and presented absolutely as a confessional. And, you know, we're so much more au fait nowadays with looking at videos like this where people are talking into a camera and you are listening to what they're saying but 
that was very novel. Twenty, you know, twenty-five years ago, whenever this was, that was really, really unusual for the for the captain of the show to be talking to you and explaining that he has done something which he feels morally ambiguous about or morally conflicted about. Ambiguous is wrong. Morally conflicted about, and he is seeking absolution from you by telling you his story. And he wants to reach this sort of moment of catharsis and clarity by laying everything out there and trying to justify his decisions. And, I mean, it just keeps on coming back to it. The entire the entire framing of the episode is Cisco's personal log. I mean, it's 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 massive, isn't it? We all we all know when Cisco is toasting his glass and looking you straight down the eye of the camera. We know exactly what episode that's from because it so rarely happens that we get these absolutely intense, emotional, conflicted, express you know. Yeah, essentially confessions of of what what he's done directly to you, and you being the person who gets to make the judgment about whether it was right or wrong, whether he has any demons to face up to or not, whether he could have done anything different or should have, you get to make that decision. And at the very end, he tells you he can live with it and looks you in the eye and has a healthy swig of his drink and tells you he lives with it. But all the way through, he's gone through his personal logs and through his statements. They're just full of cliche justifications about a man who knows what he's doing is wrong, but is continuing anyway because the end is righteous. So for for Art of Darkness, I haven't selected a, a particular scene. I've selected the entire framing of the episode, which is a confession, whereby you are the you are the priest and he has stepped into the the booth and is telling you his deepest, darkest secrets, and then just expecting that you will, you will listen, you will understand, and you will let him live with it, and that's it. Uh, and it's so well done, and it's just absolutely, you know, every Star Trek, every Star Trek fan knows this episode because it's so so well known. But it's so unusual for you to be narrated, have a story narrated for you directly to you not just a voiceover not just uh not just a sort of a little bit of narration here and there but uh i'm telling you this looking right at you here's what happened uh i'm gonna confess so that that is that is for art of darkness in in the pale moonlight i think it's it's very it's a very powerful thing because it stands out like the closest thing that we've had to something like that um, by this kind of point in Trek is something like day is day, you know, here's me yeah. going for that oh, with the yeah. dancing doctor or, you know, we've got, <laughs> oh, I wonder what this wedding is going to be like. And then I think you see it kind of later in, in 98, I think it was. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it was 98, where you had like 30 days where the episode came up short. They were like, how do we pad out this? Like, I think it's an incredible episode of Voyager. Um, how do we pad out this episode of like you know, Tom Paris going to the brig for like, you know, his his water thing, where it's like, well, well, we'll build in the confessional and the reflection and so on. But I think there's just something about that, like that breaking that kind of fourth wall, which is really stands out in, in Star Trek. We, we don't have anything at all like that. And I think it, it makes In the Pale Moonlight such an even kind of richer episode. And it's so rare that we get that kind of insight into kind of our captain's psyche you know we could we could you could probably count out the episodes on the head you could have something like night from from voyager kind of the wrath of Khan, um you know 
Picard much more of a kind of quiet character. You know, there's it's so lacking kind of what makes these larger than life icons, these people that people look up to debate who's my favorite character. So often we don't actually know what makes these people tick and what makes them kind of the characters that they are. And I think something like that is such a valuable insight. Mm. Yeah, and, and Cisco's looking you dead in the eye and telling you one of the worst things that a captain has ever done, <laughs> you know, in Star Trek, um, which is, is powerful, you know, so it's not just, it's not just the, of him looking at the camera, looking, you know, the confessional and looking at, the ca- at you, um, looking directly at the camera, but also what he's confessing to. Um, Cause you're right. It's not, it's not data's day. It's not, here's a little story. Here's why I'm in the brig for 30 days. You know, this is, this is, you might judge me for this. You might, you know, you might think less of me after I, I tell you this. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, people love this episode so much just because it, it is such a, a, an unusual storytelling device in, in Star Trek. And I'm surprised we're not seeing more of it. I mean, obviously, we don't get as many episodes of Star Trek as we as we used to. You know, what one season's not 25 episodes long, but we are so used nowadays to seeing this kind of communication, to being spoken to like this, to to going yeah. to meetings and having someone look you in the eye via the camera. I'm surprised. I, I would expect that we might see something else like this. It can, you know, obviously, it would always be compared to this episode, but maybe something you know, a, a new take on it. Uh, maybe just a, maybe just an episode where they'd have a Zoom meeting. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> no, please. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? We don't need that. They're all just stuck in their quarters and can't get out. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see them doing something more like Data's Day with, with like the Discovery Bridge crew or something like that, you know. Yes. A little, little less, less high stakes <laughs> with that, which would be fun. All right. Wow. Uh, points for the art of darkness. The behind the scenes. I think I'm going to have to give. I'm going to. You know, I, I, this is the, the thing where you feel so bad. But like, I'm going to vote for for <laughs> for damage for this one. And um, I yeah. think like as as and like it's one thing. Oh my god, I feel so sacrilegious like voting against in the pale moonlight. No. Oh my god. Um, but it's one of those things. Like I think as amazing as like that Michael Taylor script is for, for in the pale moonlight. I think there's something to be said for Star Trek telling a story visually with sort of like artistic flair and giving an insight into that kind of psyche without having people kind of talk you through what they're thinking. I think that's something to, to be admired. And I think it can be easy to fall on. This is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm doing. This is how I felt when I did it. Like, I just think, as I say, I just go back to like early 2000s Star Trek and you have this scene of characters completely shrouded in complete darkness on Friday night TV. I'm sure someone will turn around and it was actually like, tell me it was still on like Monday night or whatever um, at the time. But like Friday night Star Trek TV where you've got like your main characters, you're casting them in such a dark way, you're not lighting them. It, it, it's the sign of like that is basically what we're seeing with a lot of discovery now that kind of darker lighting kind of mm-hmm. you know things like that like enterprise is as a critical kind of juncture and while it failed it's gone on and, and been a success in, in other shows so yeah I, I think i have to kind of pick damage this time i think for me 
I really love the, I mean, the the way that Cisco is portrayed and the the confession of it all. I love, and it's so well established in Star Trek canon that this is just a fabulous episode, and we recognise this style of communication specifically with this episode. But I was honestly like, when Flox and Archer have that conversation, I was holding my breath. I was like, oh god. It's. It took me by surprise how deeply I felt that sort of dark moment portrayed. So I think I'm going to give my point to Damage as well. I feel very strange now giving two points in a row to Damage. <laughs> um, but I, I really, I mean, I emotionally felt that scene happen. And maybe it's maybe it's a recency effect because I've watched In the Pale Moonlight more times than I've watched Damage. But it, you know, w- watching them together, maybe that's maybe that's why it helped. But I really felt it this time, and it took me by surprise a little bit. But it was very effective, so I'm very happy to give my point to damage. Yeah, my point's going to damage for this category too. It just it just feels very um, theatrical. The whole the whole thing, like a uh, uh, not just like those two scenes you mentioned, but the entire uh, to Paul sub you know subplot here. Every scene with to Paul. It feels like they use the same techniques to to show us how she how she's feeling, you know, like like when she's going through withdrawal, when she's, you know, you know, looking for her for the high, you know, when she, that shower it, scene it, as well, like you know, scene. that is like horror movie style stuff. That yeah, is unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things like I felt like I could have gone on with so many things. But I was like, no, I'm going to focus on that. Yeah. Like that shower scene of like they're having that kind of make out, like very horror movie like like. The music's yes. a bit uneven. Something's a bit going wrong, and then like you have like to Paul basically like a monster that looks like it's going to stab you. Like like what the heck? Like that is wild, and I I'm all right. here for wild Star Trek. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and they did that. It that felt surreal. Even you know that scene, like before <laughs> before she turned into the zombie. You know that scene it comes. It doesn't come out of nowhere, but it turns into something which was just. I yeah. honestly did not expect that to happen. And it really, really took me by surprise. <laughs> but it was so good. And I love the callback. You know, well, the whole episodes, that that entire plot is a callback to Impulse. Yeah. But I loved that because I love Impulse because I like zombie films. So I was all over it. <laughs> and I want to on record that I was not the one that brought up Trip in the Shower. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that that's uh, damage swept that category. So after two rounds, uh, damage has four, and in the pale moonlight has two. All right, we're gonna so hate now for this. I this, know, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's still early. There's still rounds to go. Oh, there's loads of rounds. There's always time. All right. Um. So since we we've been touching on it a lot here, well, let's talk a little bit more about our captains and uh, talk about the best moment of self reflection. Okay, uh, Ross, what's your best moment of self-reflection for In the Pale Moonlight? Um, so moment of self-reflection, again, the beauty of In the Pale Moonlight is that Cisco is narrating you all his innermost thoughts. So I knew <laughs> exactly when this moment of self-reflection took place. Um, Cisco and Garak have brought a data forger onto the station, and Cisco has to pull a few strings with the Klingon High Council to get him out of jail. And now this gloriously blue alien called Grayson Tolar is in in Quark's bar celebrating his freedom 
by downing uh, Whelan Bitters and trying to dance with a dubber <laughs> girl named Mapella. Uh, Quark, Quark, so Mapella rejects Tolar's advances and Quark steps, it, steps in and is promptly stabbed by Tolar. And this is when it becomes a, a personal problem for Cisco because he has to cover for the fact that Tolar is aboard uh, and he has to then demonstrate to Quark that he is not above bending the rules to get what he wants done. And there's a nice it's a nice euphemism it's a nice euphemism because Quark calls what it is a bribe. And you can see the swell of satisfaction on his face as he outlines all the things he wants Cisco's to do for him uh, in order to guarantee his silence. And then Quark rounds it off by reciting oh I can't remember uh, I can't remember which exact uh, rule of acquisition it was, but every man has his price. And it mm-hmm. cuts from Quark's smiling face to Cisco sort of thinking that was when I had my first genuine doubt that I was on the right path. Uh, that was I doing the right thing? Was I doing the wrong thing? And then, of course, it changes and there's news that... Uh, is, it, is it then when we get the news that Beta Z has been uh, taken by the Dominion and suddenly he's back in it again and he can't he doesn't want to do it, but he must. Otherwise, things like this are going to continue to happen. And he reflected on it so quickly because he's now eye level with Quark and he never expected to be that. He's really, you know, he's down there talking to him and he is in Quark's environment, in Quark's zone. He's doing things he never thought he would do. He is getting Tolar out of prison. He is going to fudge records so Quark gets the stuff out of the cargo bay. And he really, really doesn't want to, but he justifies it. And this is what he constantly does through the episode, justifies what he's doing. But he's constantly reflecting all the way through about whether this is the right thing to do and justifying to you, the listener, here is why I had to do it. And I knew at the time it wasn't the best thing to do, but I didn't feel I had any other choice. So I had to have to do it. So best moment of self-reflection is Quark's smug satisfaction as he lists that every man has his price, and Cisco agreeing to do things which he otherwise would never do, and would normally happily turn Quark over to Odo for. Yeah, I love this pick. It's such a it's it's real it's funny to see the look on Quark's face when he realizes that he's he's being bribed by Cisco, <laughs> and the the glee he takes in that is funny. But when he says, you know, every man has his price, that's that's what this episode boils down to yep. is that line. Every man has his price. And, and, you know, you always, I always go back to my, my favorite, uh, my, my, my favorite speech, I think in all of Star Trek is, is it's easy to be a saint in paradise, mm. you know? And those two lines go hand in hand because it's not paradise anymore. And some, you know, sometimes you, you can't keep your hands clean and, Every man has his price, and it looks like Cisco's price is the Alpha saving the Alpha Quadrant, which is you know. What a pro- I, I mean, should... well, legitimate price. You shouldn't be <laughs> concerned about that, but it's right. it's how you go about doing something as well, isn't it? Right. I, I think it's interesting compared to sort of of damage, and this sounds like I'm going to throw damage under the bus here. Um, <laughs> but you, the joy of something like in the pale moonlight is like it is that confessional, is that one episode where you go through sort of that 
that journey with kind of Cisco of like his doubts, you know, yeah. reflecting on his behavior. The challenging thing with damage is like that self-reflection really kicks in in like two, three episodes time. And as like kind of mm. he reflects on his decisions yeah. he's made in the expanse. And like you have that great moment with Archer, but I, ca- I cannot count that. Like I, you know, I am a stickler <laughs> for the, the rules I've posed on myself. Like, like the, the self-reflection, like in this episode, we have headstrong Archer. Like he has decided that he is making this decision. It's not even saying to, you know, Flox, do you have the capacity to deal with these injuries or anything that's come through? It's like, there's going to be casualties. Mm. And then when, right. you know, we'll touch on this a bit later on, I think when he has that conversation with T'Pol, it's like, no, 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 that's like taken care of. Don't worry about that. I've got plans for that. It's all right. There's there's no moment where we see that chink in the armor. Yeah, we see the conflict internally, whether it's kind of the, with the use of sort of like, you know, the cinematography and lighting as we kind of touched on. But like it, th- there isn't that moment of self-reflection. This is a person that is determined and is not seeing any fault in their their plan with this. So it's, it's one of those ones like damage as a bubble. It doesn't have that self-reflection. It has like the accumulation of a journey and a journey that's going to continue. But this is someone that is not kind of taking a moment to sit and think, is this the right thing to do? You know, it, it, the decision has been made and he is going to deal with the consequences right. of it. Yeah, and you're right about that because he's made the decision, like right away. He he made it's it's now it's just him working up the nerve to actually do it, <laughs> you know. Versus versus like trying to decide. I guess like I mean Cisco. I don't think Cisco seriously though is going to decide not to do it. Like there's no moment where he's gonna stop. He's gonna a- actually stop his plan. No. I, th- I think I think the minute he met with Garrick he was committed to doing whatever he needed to do. And the same with Archer. As soon as he got that message that said, you know, you have to be in this coordinates in three days and you need warp 3.5, you know, warp three, whatever to get there. He made the decision. I think they both made the decisions right away. So I I think these moments of self-reflection are more like, how am I going to live with myself moments? (laughs) Kind of, you know? Yeah. That's my reading on them both. But all right, it is it is hard, isn't it? But they're both. I mean, this comes up later on as well. The idea that because they are serialized, actually, Mm -hmm. probably some of these questions could be some slightly better answered with other episodes later on. But I, I with Lee, and later on, I've. I've strictly stuck to the rules of the episode, um, but it, it's the beauty and the the beauty of the series is that you get a lot more, and it's not just here's what happens in this episode, mm-hmm. and we'll never we'll never think or consider it. But uh, yeah, to, to revisit it later on is interesting. Okay. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that moment with Flox is his. I mean, is is his moment of self reflection too? Because oh, yeah. he's not. I, I mean, he's not considering changing the plan but but man he's trying to get some he wants some support he wants some justification you know have yeah. if, if, how, have you ever done anything you considered was unethical i i know that what i'm considering is unethical now i want somebody else to say do you know what in a similar situation i would do what you're doing right and apart from to paul everyone enables it like you know even yeah. like we're we're going to board that ship who are we boarding oh we want their warp coil 
Then you just see Reed sort of look on his face, you know, a very Navy man. Okay, that's the, that's the thing. Even sitting around right. that sort of situation room, people are like nodding their heads. They'll go through it. I mean, you know, whether it was maybe more peacetime, I think there could be an issue. But he is being enabled by pretty much every kind of character. And, you know, I'm certainly yeah. going to touch on it with Paul later on. But, mm-hmm. like, you know, he's given sort of like a free pass to to go on and, and do this. There's no one like Paul Fox isn't going there. You know, I've done it and I've regretted it. It's just like, oh, mm-hmm. I, I've had to do it. Um, okay. Yeah, right. I'll be ready. And and the, you get no, you get nothing from Flocks about how he felt about doing those unethical things and what justification he had. Have you done anything unethical? Yes. Okay. I, I mean, <laughs> is is that helpful or not? I mean, you know, it depends. I suppose it depends what you were doing. But he does. He is supporting his captain in that sense, isn't he? And saying, I know you're going to struggle with this. But everybody's going to have, you know, we all have challenges. We all have difficult things that have happened to us. You've got to do the right thing at the right time as much as you can. And Archer is just relentless in everything he does. And his singular goal is to protect Earth. Of course. And he's going to, you know, here, I mean, both of these episodes are as justify the means episodes. And he's going to do... What needs to be done, even if it's, you know, like in the Pale Moonlight, it costs the self-respect of a Starfleet officer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the price he's he's willing to pay. Oh, man. This is a t- yeah, <laughs> poor, pretty poor savage, Cisco and Archer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What are we doing for points here? It's got to be the pale moonlight for me. I, as I say, I've thrown my choice <laughs> under the under the 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 wheel for this one, and so on. I, I think ultimately we we see that self reflection, you know, really brought to life in kind of future episodes. Whereas here, they it's it's not kind of touched on because of sort of the the, the circumstances of this episode. So yeah, it's got to be in the pale moonlight. I think for me as well, the 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 sort of the the clarity of it and the sort of the beautiful smugness of Quark really sort of hits it home for me. So yeah, I'm quite happy for In the Pale Moonlight to pick this one up as well. Yeah. Uh, In the Pale Moonlight for me as well too. And it's the same thing. Like I said earlier, I don't think he was actually considering not going through with anything, Um, but it's more, but it did kind of, you know, put into focus what he was actually doing. Uh, the fact that he ha- he actually had to get down to Quark's level and <laughs> and bribe yeah. him, um, kind of you know brought it home from what he was uh, you know the path he was actually going down and and it was it was a fu- it was an interesting way for them to to show that to show how far down the path he's going because now he's not only um, colluding with Garrick but he's also down in the, <laughs> the down yeah, in the, uh, the bowels of deep space the bowels nine, of deep space doing nine. exactly <laughs> what he Quark. thought he would never do. <laughs> Oh man. Okay. So, uh, with that category in the pale moonlight pulled ahead. So now in the pale moonlight has five and damage has four. All right. Next category, category four. We're going to talk about our conscientious objectors. Lee. Yeah. Do you have any conscientious object, conscientious (laughs) objectors to the plan? Oh, absolutely. Damage. Yeah, yeah. We, we we spoke about it. There's only one, and that is to Paul. Um, and yeah. everyone else is sort of enabling Archer's kind of behavior. And um, yeah, like 
it's it's everyone seems to fall in line you know flox is literally told there'll be casualties like you're a doctor your your kind of thing is like you know protect people's <laughs> lives hippocratic oath it's like oh, okay i'll be ready um, and yeah. there's kind of no pushback yeah. but like we obviously use this term conscientious object objector but for me it, it's conflict which we kind of spoke about earlier and, and that's right. what i love in in the star trek that i love you know, kind of growing up, his nine was shunned for being that kind of that dark horse. That, you know, they were angry at each other. They were moaning. There was war. There was conflict. And it was turning, obviously, against that Roddenberry vision. Likewise, Enterprise, which feels like it's finding more and more fans kind of of, of year and year on, even though, like, there could be an argument about sort of the politics of, of season three taking a kind of a twist towards the right. But I think for me... The dynamic between sort of the argument with T'Pol is really fascinating when you kind of break it down about how she objects to him. Like she goes in straight away going like no different to the marauders that we encountered at the start of season three that came to Enterprise, ransacked Mm -hmm. the ship, took this things. That doesn't work. But well, then it's like stealing their warp court could be condemning them to death. Archer doesn't blink. He is like, no, still going ahead with it. The alien ship could be crippled, you know, you know, we are essentially, it might, we might get what we need now, but like we could go ahead and, you know, get back to earth and like, they'll be, you know, stranded for years at best. And then it's like, it then goes appeal to him as a captain, but what happens if it goes wrong? And like, she even kind of really goes hard on of like, we can't save humanity without holding on to what makes us human. Those were your words to me. She's shining like that mirror upon this kind of dark and broken man of like reminding him of who he is, who he was at the start of, you know, one episode before the Zindi shot Earth and so on. And, you know, staying true to that. And, you know, Archer, like he is, he's pushing back, like, you know, I'm no happier doing this than you are, but um, we're not going to make a habit of it. You know, that's a that's an abuser's kind of line. You know, yeah. it's completely one off. She holds him up on that as well. Yeah, She's yeah. Like, you, you're taking the first step, and if you convince yourself of this once, you can convince yourself of it again. Exactly. And the parallel I drew with it last year. I mean, I mean, Star Trek is is timeless in a way. Like these are shows of the time. I mean, this is a show that is very much about kind of nine eleven. You know, there's nothing new about that. But like when I was watching this last year, when I was thinking about like. 2020 you know watching star trek and thinking like oh that episode plays differently in a covid environment i was thinking of like the politics that we're, we're seeing uh, you know in the uk and the us about leaders that were like we've made a mistake here but it's not going to happen again don't worry about it um and you know the people around them sort of enabling it. and it's like it's just a one-off and it's that one of like when you kind of rationalize that first misstep whether it's yeah. like covid rollout what goes on in care homes what happens in times of trying to help people you know it becomes a pattern of behavior and we've seen that all across kind of the world and like he says he's not trying to rationalize anything he knows what he's doing like that is like complete arrogance um and like to paul goes you know i can't justify it you know we don't have the choice and she won't let him do it like then she smashes that pad i had another option i'd take it we're no different than the marauders who attacked us when we entered the expanse. We're a lot different. By stealing their warp quill, we could be condemning them to death. We're going to leave them a supply of trellium along with some extra food. I'm not saying it'll be easy for them, but they'll stand a decent chance of making it home. You're forgetting that we're in a dangerous region of space. Our assault could cripple their ability to defend themselves. Not if we do it right. And what if something goes wrong? We can debate this all day. 
I've made my decision. We can't save humanity without holding on to what makes us human. Those were your words to me. I'm no happier doing this than you are. But we're not gonna make a habit of it. Once you rationalize the first misstep, it's easy to fall into a pattern of behavior. I'm not rationalizing anything. I know full well what I'm doing. I can't justify this course of action. We don't have a choice. I won't let you do it! But what's interesting for me is that as much as she is an objector, she totally allows it to happen seconds she later. She gets on board very yeah, quickly. Yeah, she has she essentially damaged herself. You know, she is suffering drug withdrawals. And it's the fact that she is like, she's going hard in on him. She is like 100% correct. But she's been emotionally compromised with, with Trellium D. And then the moment kind of passes, like the smashing of this kind of pad should be the moment of like Archer going, you know what? I'm wrong here. Yeah, you're right. I, you, I've seen the light. But it's like to Paul kind of breaks and it's like they kind of have that little, you can imagine it like we've all probably been in relationships where we've had that argument. Probably not about like stealing stuff. But yeah. But it's like no, it all bubbles up. And then there's a moment of like, a giggle or something where it's like, oh yeah, you, you've never broken my pad before or something. And it diffuses the situation. And she's like, you know, I, I've not meditated. You know, it's like the moment passes and it's, he's like, I need you to go <laughs> meditate because I need you on the bridge to make it successful. And it's not so much that she wins the argument or that Archer wins. It's just that she is just like broken. She's like, she doesn't have She's the She's incapable of carrying yeah. it on, yeah. Exactly. And it's like such strong objection and everything she says is correct, but it just pitters out. And it's again, it's when the reality is you've got a few days to do anything, the ship is probably getting further away. You know, enterprise is damaged. Time is ticking away. It ultimately gets wrapped up quite quickly, but it's a hell of an objection. But ultimately it falls very, very short and she's there on the bridge commanding at the end. She really, she really goes in for it. And I think, it was a really bizarre juxtaposition to have. Well, it wasn't a bizarre juxtaposition because they're both dealing with things they know are wrong and trying to come to terms with them. Both DePaul and Archer are dealing with difficult personal situations and, you know, trying to come to terms with them. So it, 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 it does make sense as a sort of a, an A plot and a B plot. But I love this as the intersection between the A plot and the B plots that you are. You've, you're watching Topol break down gradually and you're watching Archer break down gradually. Um, and here's where, in any other episode, she'd have convinced him of what to do or she'd have persuaded him of a better course of action or made him, or given him food for thought, but she couldn't because she doesn't trust herself because she is in a, she's in a bad place herself. And I really like that as the intersection between the two plots. I feel like I I, lo I love to Paul and I love the the whole storyline that she got with the Trillium D. Um, and and, and I, I feel here like like she if if she wasn't if she was able to suppress her emotions like if if Trillium D wasn't an issue, they would have had a very similar conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like 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 this it. it she still would have felt the way she felt like that's not, you know, I mean, she wouldn't have lashed out and broken the pad and all that stuff. No, no, no. Um, so I, but I, I feel like the thing that would have been different 
is that she wouldn't have given up so quickly. I it, agree. It, it, yeah. You know what I mean? Because like, because like, like they have it, and, and he's he's kind of like, like he uses that. He's he's very dismissive because he's made his decision. You know, so he's he's dismissive dismissive of her objection objections, not just because of, of of you know her her saying it in in, a, in such a way where she's lashing out, um, and then you know afterwards she's just like you said she's just done because because she, she has other things on her mind. So she said her her piece and and um, and God, there's almost I, I the part I hate is it's almost like she apologizes, mm-hmm. but she doesn't. She said it's something like. I forget what she says. Like, like I said things I didn't mean, or, or whatever it is they say, and, and he says it's okay, or, which, which I hate because she's not the one who should, who should, you know, be apologizing. <laughs> I guess maybe, maybe for breaking the pad, <laughs> like, like that's you know, maybe the way she presented it. Because that's what she says. Like I didn't mean what I said. But like, yeah, she's gone right. through it. Like she said, like you know, like these people could be put at risk. Like we are betraying yeah. our oath. All she, these things are like, you can't. You no one watched that scene and go, that that to Paul check her. Like she is like speaking right, some right. wild non. Like we get that with Volpe right. sometimes, where it's like, come on, like get real. Like she is speaking to him on yeah. a human level, a practical right. level, a captaincy level, you know, thinking of other people, reminding them of their experience. Um, but Archer is not having, and like, I, I'm not ca- calling Archer an, an abuser in any sort of respect, but it plays into sort of that kind of dynamic. And, and you know, she is ultimately a very vulnerable person at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it did feel like that when he basically got an apology out of her, when she, she had nothing to apologize for, you know, besides the, breaking the path thing you know and, and so i i totally got that vibe too and yeah and archer's not like i'm not saying archer is an abuser but but i i just that the the apology the the quasi apology scene is is what kicked it up a notch for me which i didn't care i didn't care for that um yeah but but yeah so it, it, I, and i think that i think that's the part of, of her just like giving in is 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 the uh the part that wouldn't have happened if she wasn't you know, she didn't have all this other stuff on her mind and, you know, physically just physically and mentally done. <laughs> um, and you're right. She just falls in line. And I mean, she kind of has to, he's going to do what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they need her on the ship. Do they need her to? I'm not sure she'd have changed his mind. Uh, even if she had been, you know, all guns blazing, yeah. I'm not sure she would have changed his mind. I'm not sure she would have participated or she'd That's have what I'm been, saying. Yes. Yeah. She'd have been a lot more distant. She wouldn't have it. let it go. No. Yeah, as, as much as she did. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was trying to say. Yeah. So, uh, to Paul in this episode, I love it. She's so good. That's a great pick. Um, how about a con? Is there a conscientious objector to any part of the plan in in the pale moonlight? There is actually compared to the previous uh, the previous categories. This one's a very hard category to fulfill um, <laughs> because Cisco keeps the plan very much to himself. Mm-hmm. In fact, all of his co-conspirators, apart from the Starfleet higher-ups who okay the mission, are the sort of, in inverted commas, undesirables of the station, um, whom, you know, they would usually cast a blind eye to unscrupulous dealings, and he wouldn't have much dealings with them. However, there is one clear conscientious objector to what he perceives as a clear wrong, 
and this is Bashir. He is very concerned about Cisco's request for 85 litres of biomimetic gel, a compound that can be used for all sorts of things, including biogenic weapons and illegal replication, or to develop organic explosives. Um, and Cisco needs this mimetic gel to purchase a genuine Cardassian data rod to give the deception the authentic quality it requires. And Bashir, not, you know, not uncharacteristic, because Bashir can get righteously angry when he wants to, uh, about especially about medical issues and medical conditions. But he gives Cisco a genuine grilling. And that sort of, you don't often see Cisco getting spoken to in that way. Even when, you know, we do see doctors doing, doctors telling captains what to do occasionally, like go and get some sleep or, you know, I'm, I'm, re- I'm relieving you of duty for whatever reason. But Bashir goes all in about how he thinks this is wrong. And he doesn't just want the order in writing, but he's also going to file an official complaint with Starfleet Medical. And Cisco just gives him a savage brush off. Um, I can imagine that you didn't, you know, for the for a couple of days they were probably there was probably some bad blood there, because he was they were both not rude to Cisco was rude to Bashir, and Bashir was very cross, but he didn't know what the gel was being used for, and he didn't want it. He didn't want to have to hand it over, and he objected. He objected to something which he knew was absolutely wrong and he was not told of the reason why it could potentially be right. So he objected to the provision of it. And Cisco doesn't draw him into the plan, which you know, that's part of the plot of this, isn't it? This is Cisco's burden to bear. Him and Garak and Quark, they can they can deal with all these horrible things. But he doesn't tell Bashir any of this. He doesn't have to drag Bashir into this problem that he's creating. So that Cisco won't, so that Bashir won't have to deal with it or have it on his conscience. He just tells him to do it, and he tells him, you know, get it done, do whatever you feel is necessary, and that's the end. And I was pleased that Bashir stood up to him, and uh, it was nice. It was nice to get that sort of hmm. real pushback from someone who's telling you this is the wrong thing to do, in a, a really strongly worded, very prescriptive and sort of quite objective standpoint like you shouldn't be giving anyone this stuff it is terribly dangerous and there's probably no good reason that you can justify it to me and he objected Bashir the conscientious objector not to the entire plan per se because he did not know what it was but certainly to the bit that he was aware of he did not want to do it and he did not think that there was there were any good reasons to do it I always wonder what would have happened if he refused to give Cisco biomimetic gel. Like, would Cisco have had to have told him the whole plan? And would that have changed Bashir's mind or not? I don't know. I'm <laughs> sure that at this point, Cisco could go over his head. There are there are other people who could get to do it. And you kind of think of, like, Bashir's had experience of, like, the damage biometric gel can cause like um was it like distant yeah. voices in, in season three where like they talk about like you know i think can't remember how, how it all kind of 
unfold but that the person was trying to get it um so like he he knows the kind of the people that something like that attracts but i think ultimately cisco would probably would have just overruled him and went like i just i need this like this is an order from your captain you know you can go through the process of like putting in a complaint but it's happening and if push came to shove you know someone from the starfleet head honchos would say tap on the shoulder it's happening and so on deal with it right yeah He's, he's already got the okay. He doesn't need to explain it to Bashir. And maybe if Bashir had refused, no, I don't think he would have told him. I think he's protecting Bashir. He's he's protecting him from this massive problem. The more people who know about this, the bigger a problem it is. And it does nobody anything to for anyone to know about it. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's an order. Yeah. I, I'm telling you to do right. this. You do your job. You don't need right. to know about this. The, the, there, may, there may be things I know that you don't know, and that's okay. You just have to live with that. Right, and he, he objects, and then he falls in line the same way, you know. He he can't and not damage. Fall. They're gonna right. He, they're gonna listen to their captain. He can't not fall in line. He does literally right. everything he could do to say right, it's right. wrong, and but there's nothing else he can do. He is he is then stuck. And that I mean, this is this part of the plan is is, is one of the worst parts. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, what? Because we don't know. We don't know what the consequences. Um, you know, at the end, Garrick's like, oh, all it costs was, you know, a Romulan senator and a, you know, criminal and the self-respect of, you know, of Cisco. But that's not all. I mean, we don't even, we don't know what this person, this yeah. shady person <laughs> did with this 80 liters or whatever it was of biomimetic gel, which seems like a lot. And it seems like you do a lot of scary nasty things dangerous stuff with it dangerous stuff yeah. but they were able to negotiate like the things so maybe <laughs> got it down to like one liter and like some like dabo tokens for quarks and so on like we we, we <laughs> don't have the full behind the scenes on that negotiation so that is true yeah. it, it well, wanted worked, 200 but... originally yeah 200 liters 200 liters i couldn't get 200 there isn't that much anywhere and he goes well negotiable isn't it because they just it's all a power play, isn't it? He wants something that only Starfleet will be able to provide. And right. it doesn't really matter how much you give them as long as you're giving them some. <sighs> yeah, it seems like it's so hard to get that. Yeah. You know, he doesn't really care how much he gets. He just, for whatever shady thing he's going to do. I mean, this is, who knows where Garrick found this guy with a shady data rod. <laughs> Yeah. The only data rod that he's going to be able to find, you know, so he knew it was this valuable thing. And, oh, it's genuine. And who knows? Maybe maybe he's, gonna, yeah, genu- genuine, optolytic, optolytic, whatever. I just called it a, a genuine Cardassian data, data rod. rod. Yeah. Genu- the, the, the word is unpronounceable. <laughs> genuine, bona fide data rod. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. Yeah. Oh man, that's so scary. And yeah, and who knows? I mean, he'll probably just maybe he'll even just take this gel and sell it to other shady people. Because yeah. if he asked for that much gel, you probably you probably don't need that much gel to do shady things. You probably sell it in a bunch of little. Yeah, because you, know, you can't be baggies. doing all, <laughs> you can't be doing all those things. Illegal replication experiments. I mean, right, what does right. that even mean? Yeah. Oh man. I Develop organic explosives. Nobody wants to do all those things, do they? Yeah. <laughs> It's very useful, very useful stuff. Yeah. Wow. So, wow. Points wise, who's getting the point for their their objections? I 
I do like I like Paul's objections, and I think she probably has she probably has the stronger actual more reasonable objections to make because you know on the one hand it's some you know Bashir's concerned about the dangerous transport materials that could be used for legal things, whereas she's trying to talk Archer up legitimate piracy. Um, but I do I do like Bashir's steadfastness and refusal yeah. to be swayed by it. So I think, uh, you know, from the objecting part of the objector, he is the most objectionable. And that's wrong, <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean. So but he still Bashir. gives the jail though at the end though the same as the ball they both could not he couldn't not give the jail he's got to give the jail that's obliged that is just part of what's going to happen if he if he if he what's the most he could do resign his commission Cisco will just go to the next person and get the jail the jail the jail's coming yeah. jail is coming oh then I suppose you know Archer is committing piracy <laughs> this is challenging. It is. Uh, I think I, I'm, I'm going to go with, with T'Pol. I find her approach of sort of like, it's not, the, it's just the fact that she objects on so many levels. You know, it's it's like, you know, we're no better than the, the Marauders, reminding it, like reminding us of the sort of journey we've gone through in these kind of 19 episodes, excluding when they got turned into like primates and so on. But like, mm. there's that. And then like, you know, begging him to think about this crew, this ship, what will happen to them. You know, no amount of like snacks and supplies are going to kind of help make this kind of experience any better for the next three, four years as they make their way home. And, you know, even sort of going to the part where she's like, I'm going to have no part in this, you know, and just reminding of like, we're humans, like they're literally just throwing all that away. Like, I just love that she in like the space of a 30 second conversation comes at it in so many different different angles and ultimately she is compromised she's she's not able to kind of see it through her objection but you know she certainly notes it and you know if, if there was a log to be written on that day if there was time it would have been well and truly noted but you know they're they don't have the you know the, the time to make those moments of going right you know we're going to follow the chain of command here it's like decisions need to be made you know or it's life or death minutes are on the line here and i, I think ultimately to paul even though she kind of relents you know i think her objections the way she does it I, it makes for fantastic gripping tv and, and, and drama very well written and i, I think it's, it's it's a standout moment mm. Okay. Uh, for my point, well, I I love I love the the part that Bashir plays, which is of someone who's basically untouched by any of this. So he he has he has the luxury of standing by his principles. Oh yeah, and that's that's kind of the point. Like, like his his point in the story is to show Cisco how far he's fallen, you know, and and so and you're right, and he does everything right. He's you know he, he says um I want this in writing. I'm going to formally object. I don't want to do this. But it's an order. I have to, you know, obey the order. So I'm going to get you to the jail. Um, but my point is going to T'Pol here um, in damage. I I love that. I, I basically, I like the, the relationship that she has with Archer, that she can bring this up to him. She feels like she can in, in, the, way, in the way she did. And, and you're right, Lee. I, I love her throwing his words back in his face. Mm. Uh, from the beginning, which is a nice touch. I also like that she's literally the only one who does 
<laughs> you know, like re- he tells read the pl- read the plan and reads like, wait, who are we boarding? And then, but that's it. Then he's on board, and and trip. Lord knows I love trip, but he will do literally anything that Archer tells him to. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then he and in this episode in particular, he's Archer's cheerleader, and he's like, oh, and even at the end, he's like, oh, don't worry, you did the right thing. It's like really, like <laughs> you know. So I, I think in stark contrast to everyone around. Archer just enabling him to have to Paul, uh, you know, be be the play the role that she did and and really give it to him and really show him how far he's fallen. Uh, I I really like that part and like you said, it's Lee, it's conflict, which is always great <laughs> in an episode and and yeah, so she gets my point, and that means that we're all tied up. Six, six up. Oh my god! Going into the final round. (laughs) This one's for all the marbles, guys. (laughs) Oh man, who'd have thought? All right. So our final category is the turning of the tide. Did we go through all this for nothing, or did did we make a difference? (laughs) What was the? (laughs) How did our decisions affect the outcome? Uh, Ross for in the pale moonlight. Did this turn the tide? Okay, I don't want to sound like I've got all this sewn up, but uh, the In the Pale Moonlight section of the Dominion War article on Memory Alpha is literally titled The Tide Turns. Oh, really? <laughs> I, really felt like, I really felt like this was a sign. That's a sign, yeah. I've got my ace on my sleeve as well. Don't, you know. Oh, kill <laughs> yourself, Ross. Kill yourself. Love it, love it, love it. <laughs> so the war is going badly for the Federation. And, you know, we're, we're seeing weekly casualty lists, weekly people being lost, compounded by the fact that during the episode, the Dominion conquers Beta Z in a matter of hours, meaning the Dominion has a new strate- strategic position to strike several sort of the key worlds, including uh, Vulcan, Teller and Andor. Um, so does does this action change what happens? And actually, it's summed up beautifully at the end. Thank you, thank you, Cisco's narration. The deception pays dividends almost immediately. The day, a few, oh, just hours after Vrenak's death. Um, and I can't imagine what Cisco was going through in those two days before Vrenak was uh, found dead. I, I mean, I did. He, he says I didn't know what to do, so I just went back to work. I'm not sure I could have gone back to work if I've just essentially handed handed the Dominion a new ally in the form of the Romulans. I'm not sure I'd be just came back to work the next day. Oh my gosh! I, I don't know how he got on with it. Anyway, the deception pays dividends almost immediately. The Romulan Empire formally declares war on the Dominion, thus preventing these cuttercrofts by the Jem'Hadar to attack the Federation. They start striking bases along the Cardassian border. And it's described as a huge victory for the good guys and, quote, may even be the turning point of the entire war. Now, of course, going on from this, this isn't this episode, but we know the Romulans participated in major events during the rest of the war effort, uh, including the battle for Chintoka, uh, both of them. Um, they were essential to the war effort. Did they turn the tide of the war? They may have turned the tide for the war. It's hard to know exactly whether they did, but they certainly 
played a big part in it. The idea of a Romulan Klingon Federation alliance. I mean, unheard of really before this point, but but here we are. They are now the the Alpha and Beta Quadrant committing to a war against the Delta Quadrant. There you go. You're you're feeling confident, like but Jen, don't worry, don't worry. I don't want you to make up your mind yet. <laughs> they're still they're still good. It's still good. <laughs> yeah, I I mean there I I can't really underestimate how important that was. Basically, it, it makes sense to have them as part. Like like besides all this happening, Cisco was right in his the first conversation he had with the uh senator senator renak you know when he's like you think the dominion's just gonna stop <laughs> you know stop at conquering us you know they if if we lose you're gonna be surrounded literally surrounded by the dominion they're not just gonna let you sit there what does he call it you're you're he's not gonna they're not gonna let your chaotic empire <laughs> sit in, in the middle of their their order um so and that's you, you would think that You'd think that the Romulans would know this and they'd, they'd yeah, be presuming yeah. this as well because that's what they would do, presumably. Right. However, having read uh, Michael Chabon's I just read that the, today too. Yeah. yeah. And how, so the, how the government functions and the secrecy <laughs> yes. implicit and all their decision-making. Yeah. Maybe they don't. Maybe this is why they couldn't get their act together and actually save their population from the explosion of the Hobus star. Um, yeah. Because yeah. they're not they're not thinking about they're not thinking about everything holistically. They're more focused on their secrets and their deceptions and right. their their are immediately what's before them. They're not thinking about the bigger picture. But anyway, a massive digression. Oh, but but a good one. Yeah, yeah it's a fun everyone, one. everyone everyone read that. <laughs> I, I love <laughs> those things he's dishing out. They're great. Me too. Mm-hmm. Michael Ch- for anyone who hasn't read it, Michael Chabon has been releasing some some posts about uh, notes that he made during. You know some background notes that he's made during the the um, making of Picard season one, and and today it was what he dropped one about the Romulans, and it's so fascinating, and I love it. <sighs> All right, um, but yeah, we digress. <laughs> but look that up if you can, if you haven't seen that. Uh, yeah, so this, you know, this theoretically could have been the thing that that turned the tide, and then you know a. a Three allies working together against, basically, like you said, the Alpha, you know, for the, for, for the Alpha Quadrant and Alpha Quadrant Alliance, mm-hmm. you know, minus the Cardassians, has a better chance. And and he did, you know, and it was a big deal. But there's also high stakes in damage. Yeah, I think I need to turn the tide for damage here because I think if you're if you're like a bookie, you're like the odds are here on in the pale moonlight. I'm going to pick up on a a key word that you guys mentioned: Alpha Quadrant, Alpha Quadrant. That's what's on the line here. We kind of go back to sort of the the previous episode where like Archer discovers through Daniels kind of about the Sphere Builders, what their like grand plan is, and ultimately we all think of if any if we if we ask most fans right now. What was it about, like, the Enterprise? What was their mission, even to the bitter end of Season 3, was about saving Earth? But the reality was it went bigger than that. It was about saving the Milky Way, which is all of the quadrants, (laughs) because that's what the Sphere Builders' plan was, was to kind of 
turn sort of the expanse and then onwards we see it in the previous episode archer's showing the future if he fails if he dies like this is what's going to happen is like the delphic expanse will go beyond and it will be essentially turn the entire milky way galaxy into the kind of the situation we saw in um I think it was what Twilight, where we sort of see the rogue starships, all the kind of damage. Like mm-hmm. we have seen the consequences of this failure. So while we kind of think about the Dominion coming through, and I'll be generous, I'll be generous. Like there's the Alpha Quadrant, <laughs> but they will come for the Beta Quadrant. They will come for the Klingons. They will come for the Romulans. But if the Sphere Builders are successful and Archer fails, then the entire Milky Way will be lost to the Sphere Builders. And it's not just sitting there thinking like Earth's going to be affected. Ocampa in the Delta Quadrant is going to be affected. The Founders Homeworld in the Gamma Quadrant is going to be affected. New Bajor in the Gamma Quadrant. All the planets that we've seen and encountered over every single Star Trek franchise from Lower Decks to the original series will be affected if the Delphic Expanse expands and the Sphere Builders have their way. So it becomes even bigger than this minor battle quarrel that's taking place in just one <laughs> corner of the galaxy. This is an, this is the biggest scale possible. And I think Very a lot of people now. forget about that one. <laughs> so yeah, I am going to have to say the turning of the tide, it's got to be, you know, Archer saves the universe. I can't, wow. I can't believe these galactic threats were already in existence before Discovery started and we didn't even notice. I cannot right. believe that. Um, I feel I feel quite overwhelmed by <laughs> by how I missed that. But you make an excellent point. Um, the expanse, the sphere builders would have taken the entire of space, not just our planets, but literally everywhere we could potentially go anywhere. Oh my god! Wow, it, that's huge. My mind's blown. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I mean, is is that worth stranding a ship for three years? That sounds like a pretty we, reasonable deal. We're, sa- we're saving <laughs> their planet as well. We're yeah, saving their planet as well. well. I think we've managed to turn ourselves all into pirates here. Like, shiver me timbers, <laughs> like, pass the wrong gen. Let's go, like, pillage a ship. <laughs> Every man has his price, right? It all comes back to that. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. Would you be willing to do something like that to save the universe? <laughs> to save the universe? Yeah, I mean, you'd do it in a heartbeat, yeah, wouldn't you? Right? Oh, God, we need this to save the universe. Right. Yeah, we you need just, this warp coil you just to do save it. the universe. You, you know, it's it's kind of the equivalent of like in a movie where they just like hop in someone's car. Yeah. <laughs> like, I need this car to chase after the bad guy. <laughs> I'm going to commandeer your vehicle. Commandeer, yeah. Commandeer it. Is oh, is I mean man. a minor a minor pushback then is this what Archer is thinking about when he steals that when he pirates their uh, warp core uh, or the I can't remember what bit it is he takes actually in the end warp coil the yeah. warp coil is that is <laughs> that what he's thinking about is he thinking I must save the whole galaxy no I think thinking, the reality is he's thinking I like I have to make that Earth. meeting. Like that is yeah, all that is yeah. in his mind. Yeah. But the reality is, and it's not even like going ahead into the other episodes. A lot less, doesn't it? Yeah, we've we've seen it in that previous episode, like the consequences of you know Archer sacrificing himself, failure. You know, if the Sphere Builders yeah. have the way, and that's going to drive that. That essentially is why that means taking place. The Archer is able to go in and say, "Hey, 
Like this is what's kind of happening. Like these people are being controlled by the sphere builders and the sphere builders are actually up to, to no good. And what they're up to is essentially going to destroy the Zindi in the whole process. And he's seen that right. if, they, if they can make that meeting, you know, humanity and the Zindi will all kind of come together and they will kind of prevail over sort of the sphere builders. So yeah, like it's, it's one of those things like, I think it makes for great drama because it's distilled down to like, I just need to make this meet and I just need to get, it reminds right. me of like the show that's clearly inspired by at this point, especially with someone like Manny Koto and Brandon Braga that would go on to something like 24, where it's like you, mm-hmm. by the end of this hour, you have got to be at point A. The nuclear bomb is still a few hours away from going off, but like it all kind of is connected to, to each other. Right. But yeah, like yeah. it's not there at the moment, but it's in the background. It's, it's happened. We know this is the threat. Well, and, and I mean, and, I mean, Archer is thinking about Earth, the destruction in, in Florida. His his thinking is he has to save Earth. Yes. Like that's his bottom line. And Archer's also the kind of person, I love Archer, I do, but he also holds personal grudges, I think. I think this is like personal for him too. <laughs> um, you know? Um, not in a bad, not like necessarily in a bad way, just, just like he, he, he needs to stop this, like... Because he, it's 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 more the 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 just the injustice of the sphere, the spear builders blaming, you know, causing this like like yes. causing you know like blaming Earth for something that they're planning on doing is something that's very personal to him too. Um, so so he, I mean his motivation is 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 might not be saving the galaxy, but it's still very high stakes <laughs> you know, but also very personal stakes I, I i think i mean now that lee's come out with this bombshell i'm sort of i know i'm reconsidering where my point's going i know where's your points going guys this is a tough one i can't go that strong in on like <laughs> that he's gonna <laughs> save the entire universe from t- talax to Literally. earth and not go yeah. you know what i'm gonna give it to, to the this quarrel that's going on in the alpha quadrant <laughs> going, like, I, I have to go with like the universe here so i'm gonna go with damage yeah how about you ross unbelievably i'm also gonna go with damage uh, Phil, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm waiting to see what, what the points look like at the end of this. But yeah, it, you're right. It, the sphere builders are declaring war on the entire galaxy. They're just starting in the expanse, and Earth is collateral for their first wave of assault. You're absolutely right. Wow. <laughs> I was when we started this category. I was not expecting this too, but I'm also giving my point to damage <laughs> because yeah, I mean when you, when you gosh when you put it that way, because because you're right. The the I mean these sphere builders are are an existential threat to the entire galaxy, but also a, a legitimate genuine threat. <laughs> like uh, they're they're just playing with pawns here with the Zindi and, and the Earthlings, you know, the Terrans, I guess, in, in their first wave of just destroying everything. Jeez. Wow. Um, yeah. And that makes, that adds urgency to it in a way. The, uh, in the, in the Pale Moonlight is, is more just a, a win the war, lose the war kind of a little bit more, uh, like like typical stakes, I guess you could say. Yeah. 
But but don't get me wrong. I mean, I love the Dominion War uh, arc. Of <laughs> like I feel so bad. Like <laughs> I love the war too. I do. Yeah. And 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 it's not like the Dominion are gonna stop either. Uh, you know, they've got. You know. It's just a technicality know. at the it's, end of the day. Like it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's like galaxy wide war across like several quadrants. It's just this one right, doubles right. what's on um, Deep Space Nine's yeah. thing. So yeah, there, there's oh, it's impossible funny. to be critical of in the pale moonlight. It's just it's just not the Dominion just isn't yeah. big enough. But if I but if I, if I'm also uh, giving points like like turning the tide, which which decision made more of a difference, I would still give it to Damage because if Archer doesn't get to that meeting, the, the, like, they, it fails. Like, it's it, it's automatic. The Zindis build their weapon yeah. and that's it, they lose. Versus in the Pale Moonlight, you know, it's obviously a lot easier to win the war with the Romulans, but maybe they could have done it without the Romulans, you know? We don't know, you know, we don't know that for sure. So I, I think as far as which decision was more important to, to, you know, to turn the tide to our side winning. I got to go with archers for, you know, for that reason too. (sighs) My goodness. All right. Final scores. You guys ready for this? (laughs) Damage has nine and in the pale moonlight has six. So damage is our winner today. We well, did turn the tide at the end. It was like, did. you know, that's like a bonus point for damage is like in, on a meta level, we turned the tide for damage <laughs> in the turn the tide, right? Like Ross was so confident. I'm sure every listener felt oh, that. It, even like even you, Jen, I tweet chat you with Jen. On a tweet chat of my tweet chat with Jen, I was like, I can't lose. Can I in the pale moonlight? Impossible to lose within the pale moonlight. Oh my moonlight. god! Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna send you that because it, it's, it's like I'm like you never know. <laughs> can't possibly lose, can I? <laughs> oh, that's so great. Uh, that was before I rewatched Damage, and I was struck by how bloody good it was. <laughs> But remember, oh, it's like Trek funny. ranks. It's not about rating or things winning. It's just about that's... a good excuse to talk about Star Trek. And yeah, if anyone it, goes exactly like, you know what, I, I want to check out Damage, like very underrated yeah. episode, I think. Yeah, because and... you're totally right. Damage is underrated. Such a good episode. And and it, it, it belongs in the same uh, categories in the Pale Moonlight, you know? It really does. And it is both of them are so easy just to carry on watching the next episode and to just see how this fits into this massive narrative and to see where all this darkness comes from because the darkness doesn't start off in the episode. It's already there. They're just building on it. Um, And to watch these two episodes together, I'd never thought to do it before until Lee suggested it. It worked really nicely, but then I was also on the sort of the clock because you watch, you watch, uh, damage and then you just carry on going and you, you watch yeah. in the pale moonlight and you carry on going and it's really easy to get sucked into both of them works so nicely as a, as a double bill but really you need at least three more episodes either side <laughs> <laughs> oh well we did it and can we live with it guys i can live with it i can live with it can you live with it? i can live with it i can live with it <laughs> i can live with it <laughs> all right all right uh what's happening in the next episode of snap track good now that we've finished with the 
old business, on to the new. Time to hand out next month's story assignments. Ritterhouse, we're waiting! Okay, friends and neighbors, let's see what Uncle Roy has for you today. And on the next episode of Snack Trek, we lovingly celebrate Star Trek and animated adventures that reference previous Star Trek moments. <laughs> when we compare uh, short treks, Ephraim and Dot, with Lower Decks, Crisis Point. Yay, Lower it. Decks. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's so nice to get lower decks off the ground as well, and actually yes. just get them in an episode, and then we'll then we'll have covered it all. Yeah. Yes, we'll have every incarnation of Trek and and Snap Trek at some point. I love Yay. it. Fantastic. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. We really appreciate it, and a very special thank you to you, Lee, for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure, and. Yeah, no, no, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, if you ever want to like dive and start out, if you ever want to go dark and depressing again, I'm always happy to <laughs> come on. Oh, man. Or next time we'll do something frivolous. Like, <laughs> we'll do like. Uh, yeah, we'll do some fun, fun Ferengi we'll episodes. Like, yeah. <laughs> we'll dive into like 35 millimeter Ferengi. cameras and framing. Yeah, I'm all game. Yeah, so that, yeah, we should do one with like. We should we should find um, yeah an unusual narrative device yeah. yeah yeah real real cinematic episodes and just deep dive into into that that's but uh, yeah but thank you so much so much fun we're so glad to have you here um, anything else you want to say Ross uh, no no good thank you for joining us Lee it was good I did I did have very briefly something for best historical parallel if we ever if we were gonna do rounds we could have won. Just for two seconds. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we had, like, best lie and best historical panel. I thought my best lie was quite good as well. You guys, let's do it, guys. <laughs> uh, we could just do it, like, totally quick. And then yeah, we yeah, just yeah. say, rounds, because we usually call it, if, we, if it's not a tiebreaker, we just call it rounds we could have won. Uh, yeah. So, so I, yeah, it's just some other rounds. Yeah, yeah let's yeah. do it. Well, my, my best lie was to Paul going... It's been a difficult few days and I haven't had time to meditate. And Archer going, well, maybe you should find the time. Like, yeah, I'm a drug abuser that's having withdrawal <laughs> symptoms. I'm having wild dreams about like shower sex where I become a crazy monster. But like, yeah. oh, I, I haven't had time to meditate in a couple of I days. Just like, yeah, just, yeah, I just need a couple of minutes with my mindfulness app. I'll be totally fine. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, that, twitching, that is a terrible, jerking, cause... screaming, smashing. Oh, man. Archie looks at her and it's just I, I don't think Archie believes that because obviously <laughs> no. DePaul is not like that at all um, but he just doesn't have the time to deal with it he hasn't he hasn't got the time to go into this get yourself got, together, meditate yeah. get over the bridge <laughs> I have time she's got some good lies going too because she also lies to read she's like oh we need to get uh, you know access to Cargo Bay 2 going because Trip needs some engineering supplies <laughs> yeah. in there, yeah that's it <laughs> I really, you really get that. That's where her drugs Somebody's are. just mentioning something slightly too much to be normal. Like, yeah. <laughs> that, why yeah. saying that? That's, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Where are we on getting uh, yeah, atmosphere back it, in Cargo Bay 2? Cargo Bay 2, is it? <laughs> something something big's going on there. Right. Just curious. No reason. <laughs> uh, best lie for Cisco. I mean, it's just his bare face lie. I mean, this is the big one, isn't it? He lies directly to Renak's face. What if I told you that the Dominion is planning a sneak attack on the Romulan Empire at this very moment? Yeah. 
It's a big lie, massive. The whole episode hinges on him telling that lie to Vrenak's face. And he pulls the lie. He pulls the actual lie off. It's the proof he can't back up. But the lie is uh, reasonably well done. Right, right to his face, man. Right to his face. It's a big lie. It's massive, and he just—he doesn't look like. I mean, I can't tell a lie for shit. I am a terrible <laughs> liar. He, everyone knows instantly if I'm lying because I just—I'm so sweaty. No poker just, face. No, none whatsoever. <laughs> Never tell a lie. Just can't deal with it. But Cisco pulled off. He was fine. Good. Well, I love how it's the category of best line, and Garrick wasn't the winner. Yeah. <laughs> Garrick didn't he, actually te- te- didn't tell any lies, did he? That's that's the clever part of it. Well, he, I he mean, only told he the truth. Have. He told he told yeah. the truth, and then the, a- anything untrue he just kept to himself. I kind of think he might have been lying about all of his contacts dying on Cardassia. Who do you think? I think that he came up with this plan and lied about that. Oh yeah, I couldn't get anyone to, you know. Yeah. They all died. You really couldn't put it past it, <laughs> could you? But you don't really know with Garrick. No. <laughs> Where he, you know, and then he formulated this plan. But I don't know. Those are both good lies. Good lies. Good lies. We also had the category best historical parallel we could have used. What do you guys got for that? So I'm sorry, uh, Jonathan Archer, but um, Jonathan Archer doing his best George Bush in post 9-11, where it's like, (laughs) you know, you're either with us or you're against us. So yeah, poor Jonathan Archer, just like, you know, humanity's best hope, you know, goes kind of down that route. I mean, oh, I mean, you can really go nuts with sort of, you know, season three and and damage about the 9-11 imagery and decisions and choices and complicity. But yeah, it's a, we'll we'll, we'll just go with, with that one. It's very much a product of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, yeah, it does go down that path. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, but that's, we, we, we knew that that was what the whole series was about. We all knew that. That was, that was yeah. what it was all about. Um, best historical parallel uh, in the Pale Moonlight. I had two thoughts. One was sort of America entering World War Two, and, you know, the, 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 the the Allies sort of realizing that they weren't going to be able to defeat, you know, the German forces just themselves. They were going to need America to step in. Um, and I even, as I was researching this, I read that that Churchill considered giving a copy of the Magna Carta to America as like a a gesture of friendship, which I'd never heard of before. But that was very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But the first thing I came to was I don't know if you've heard of this Operation Mincemeat. Which is uh, it's not really an allegory, rather just sort of a, 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 a deception, a military deception. Which I know I've known about this for a long time. But I listened to a podcast on it recently, um, and a, it's a, an operation by the Allies, by the British intelligence forces, to dump a body off the coast of Spain, and they dressed the body up in a military uniform, and they secreted lots of secret plans. In the in the guy's pockets, which had been you know coded and were difficult to crack, but then it was found by the Spanish, who shared the information with the Germans, and that apparently led to the led to the manoeuvring of uh, of German forces away from a certain away from Sicily, I think was the idea, and uh, allowing the Allies to to launch an assault on Sicily. 
And that's immediately where I went, using deception to try and turn the tide of a war mm. and lying to someone in order to, to make things work cleverly. <laughs> wow. Very cool. Operation Mincemeat is a cruel <laughs> name for that plan. It's horrible because there's like a fella, it's like a, I think he was a Welsh chap and they oh, just like had a, a dead body. Yeah. They, they just oh. gave him a shave, dressed him in a <laughs> uniform and hoid him off a boat uh, wow. into, the, into Spanish waters. Simpler times. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the moral of this entire podcast is war sucks. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Absolutely nothing. That's right. That's okay. Before. Right. Oh well, that is right. it. On that horrible note, <laughs> that is it. Anything else? Anyone have anything else they, they'd like no, to say? No, okay. I don't think you We're can good. top Operation Mince Meat. That's the... <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have saved that to the very end. <laughs> oh, I love it. No, that's funny. All right. We learned something. We laughed. We cried. <laughs> and we can live with it. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. And that's a Royal Fisbin. Oh, I got to say that's a Royal Fisbin. There you go. I think that's the first I, time. You should have said, <laughs> computer, delete this log. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. And computer, delete this entire podcast. Shh.